Welcome to Insult My Intelligence. Today we're talking about NFTs. And if you don't know what an NFT is, you're not alone. After months and interviews with four experts, I still don't really understand what an NFT is. So I turned to my friend Charlie Gear, who is a professor at Lancaster University, focusing his work on new media, art and technology. And I asked him to give me a definition for NFT. Sure, Tim. Uh, an NFT uh, stands for non-fungible token. It's effectively a something in a blockchain database that cannot be replaced. It's singular and cannot be replaced by anything else or can't be swapped out. And so it's been used recently to give value to otherwise very easily replicable works of art, um, which then can be sold as unique or the single instance of that particular work of art could be sold as unique. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary came up with its own definition for NFT, a unique digital identifier that cannot be copied, substituted, or subdivided, that is recorded in a blockchain, and that is used to certify authenticity and ownership. And then that definition itself got turned into an NFT and sold. If you're confused by the word blockchain, here's a definition a system in which a record of transactions made in a cryptocurrency that are maintained across several computers that are linked in a peer-to-peer network. Basically, it's a ledger that records transactions that are stored in a decentralized way. So an NFT exists on a blockchain, in fact, the same blockchain as the cryptocurrency Ethereum. But Ethereum, like Bitcoin, is fungible. One Bitcoin can be traded for another, and they're all worth one Bitcoin. A non-fungible token is a one-off, unique, like a Picasso. If a digital artwork can be sold as a unique instrument using blockchain, that raises an important question. When you buy an NFT, what are you actually buying? After all, anyone with an internet connection can go look at, print off, and hang on their wall the artwork that you just bought. David Gerard is a crypto journalist. Sorry, a what? Functionally, it's financial journalism specializing in cryptocurrency. I used to do a lot more technical stuff, but really all the stories are about the money. The money, the psychology, what people are trying to do with this stuff. You know, um, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on, they're not really a technical thing at all. The technology is an excuse for the behavior, and the behavior is the psychology of get-rich-quick schemes. As you might gather, David Jarrod is not a fan of NFTs or the cryptocurrency world. So I asked him, if I buy an NFT, what am I buying? So people talk about NFTs um, as things you can sell because they represent digital art or objects or whatever. What an NFT actually is, it's just a pointer. It has a little bit of text in it, which might be a web page address, or it might just be a number or something, and it that represent that points to some other object. Right? That's all it is. That is the whole thing. Literally, that's all it is. It doesn't carry copyright. It doesn't carry moral rights. It doesn't carry any sort of legal rights whatsoever. It's literally just an object with a little pointer in it pointing at a thing. So if you have an NFT of art, it's just a piece of data. It doesn't encode the art or whatever. It's just someone's... Basically, it's like having a certificate of authenticity that they then trade the certificates. Right, or it might be, as I think you pointed out in an article, it's it's like someone selling you a piece of a, a, a moon on a different planet or something. I mean, you know. Yeah, the registry scam, where you sell someone the name of a star or a square foot of the moon or something. 
In February, a work by the artist Beeple sold for $69 million, the third highest price ever paid for a work by a living artist. Every day the first 5,000 days, as it's titled, was a long-term project. Beeple created a digital illustration every day for 5,000 days, and this was all of them. But the artwork that was sold wasn't a thing you can touch or hang. The artwork is a JPEG, a very large JPEG file. Now, the idea, I guess the, the, the benefit or the, the, the alleged benefit of these things is, is that the artists, artists who specialize in digital art have come across this problem that their art is uh, infinitely uh, repeatable, uh, can, be, can be traded, can be seen that one JPEG is exactly the same as the next JPEG. In fact, you know, art itself is, has become a fungible medium. Yeah, absolutely fungible. And it's been a problem for lots of art since photography came into art, since video. So this is not a new problem. It's made much worse by the fact that it's not even a question of there being art being very reproducible. There is no original in digital art. You know, one JPEG is just a sort of artifact without origin. And any reproduction of it is the same exactly identical so it is the most fungible thing you can possibly imagine if you like uh, yeah suddenly recently they have the solution to that which is to issue one copy of this as an nft and it's been seized upon by some artists not many actually interestingly but some artists as an extraordinary chance to monetize the kind of work they normally give out for free so the obvious example is beeple yeah and his work, um, what's it called? Every day, the first 5,000 5, days, which went for 69 point something million dollars, um, is the most, it makes it the third most expensive work of art by living artist in the world ever, which is extraordinary. Um, and I think it's only Jeff Koons, David Hockney that can equal it. And the first most by a living artist you've never, ever heard of. And actually, who knows absolutely nothing about contemporary art by all accounts. But in fact, it's a kind of actually, if I'm being honest, I'd rather have um, a, book, a work by Beeple than a work by Hockney or Coons any day. No, that's fair enough. I just I just wonder if if there isn't a massive act of faith on the part of the people who who are really big on NFTs in, in the sense that the NFT is a sort of certificate with a pointer that points at a thing that is that is essentially elsewhere in a, in a virtual, you know, possibly on a different server. I mean, these things, these things rise and fall on the people who, who, as far as I can work out, are the people who organize the minting of the NFTs and these sales in the first place. Yeah, but in some ways, why is that any different, really, to how anything is given value, including money itself, which in a sense is predicated on an act of faith on our behalf that the note or whatever form it now takes we have in our pocket or in our bank account or in our um, Apple Pay, will be honoured, right? It was. It, it almost. It almost dares us to stand up and say, "But this is all nonsense." It absolutely dares us to do that. If you want to go back to the art market, that is nothing but a extraordinarily fragile um, bubble, right? There are certainly artists. You might say you can see there is some genuine value in because they do seem to be kind of unique and possibly geniuses i mean i take francis bacon for example but much of what gets massively invested in the art world it's very hard to look at it and say oh i really believe this is great 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think this could collapse at any minute. And it is held together by the system of gallerists, museums and galleries, rich collectors. And overarching that is, in a sense, an act of faith that this is good or great even, and therefore will go and be worth something. If you go back to your slice of the moon problem, well, yeah, I can sell you a slice of the moon and you'll buy it if you know you can sell it to somebody else later on for more money. The selling of something that at first glance seems difficult, if not impossible, to commodify is, of course, nothing new in the art world. Only last May, the Italian artist Salvatore Garau sold an invisible, i.e. non-existent, sculpture for 15,000 euros. The only thing the buyer actually gets is some instructions about where to pretend to put the invisible sculpture and a certificate of authentication signed and stamped by the artist. Beeple's sale is, perhaps, not so different from the traditional art world. They sold it for $69 million worth of Ether, the cryptocurrency on Ethereum. And Christie's also accepted the auction fee in Ether. Um, Times have been tough for Christie's in the last year because they can't have public auctions, obviously. Mm -hmm. So they were willing to do this. And, of course, it made the papers everywhere. So it turns out that the guy who bought it, um, Meta Coven is the name he's using to do this. Um, he, he's a, been a cryptocurrency entrepreneur for several years. Um, but it turns out that he's already in business with Beeple. They've already been working okay. together on this on their crypto fund. Beeple owns a chunk of that fund. So you might think this looks very like churning your own money around to create a headline number. Right. And to, in, and to inflate or, or, or to big up NFTs generally, or maybe yep. NFTs that you will sell in future or that you already happen to own. So this sort of thing is actually quite standard. I mean, Damien Hurst's sculpture for the love of God, which was that one of a cast of a skull covered, encrusted with jewels from right. 2007. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite famous. So that was bought for $50 million or 50 million pounds. I forget which. But um, – so it came out that there was no visible evidence of this sale. Yes, it was sold privately. Right. So who was it bought by? An anonymous consortium. Right. And so, Mr. Hurst, you were in the part of that consortium, weren't you? Uh, yes, yes, I was. You know. <laughs> so with Damien Hurst, you know, that sort of shenanigan is probably part of the art. <laughs> but um, it's quite an effect to achieve. So the thing is that, NFTs allow the crypto world to reproduce a lot of the stuff that the, the high art world does already. Like one of the biggest art collections in the world is in a climate control storage container in Geneva, where people just store artworks in the Geneva Freeport and then they buy and sell them and the ownership changes, but the work still sits there. There's like Picassos and Van Goghs and Monets. Great art of the world is locked in a box somewhere and the ownership's changed around. And, you know, you might think that high art had anything to do with art, but it doesn't. Even if the amounts these NFTs are going for seem ridiculous, there are plenty of other kinds of collectibles where I also don't understand the price tag. For instance, on June 8th, a postage stamp was sold at Sotheby's in New York for $8.3 million. The British Guiana one-cent magenta, as it's known, is not much to look at. A faded red scrap. 
Introduced as a colonial contingency when a shipment of British stamps failed to materialise, the one-cent stamp was crude, printed on a local newspaper's presses. But it's also the rarest stamp in the world. None were thought to have survived until a boy found a single, well-used example among his uncle's papers in 1873. He sold it for six shillings. And sports cards have also been experiencing their own boom. A card featuring 1950s baseball legend Mickey Mantle sold for $5.2 million back in January. A LeBron James card from 2003 also sold for $5.2 million this year. And even a card of the basketball player Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks sold for $4.6 million. Now the NBA has been making moves into NFTs. NBA Top Shot is a virtual basketball card platform. Recently, a virtual card with a video of LeBron James dunking sold for $387,000. One man from within the NBA, billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban, has become a strong proponent of NFTs. So if we want to just talk about helping people understand NFTs, right? So the first thing to do is don't overthink it. And if you just ignore all the, the minting process and how it's developed and how it's made and all that, and just think of it as a collectible to start. This is just a collectible. And if it's something that you're willing to assign value to, it's a picture, it's a video, it's a song, it could be a book, it could be a ticket. But if you just think of it as a collectible, then that's all you have to do and say, this is a digital collectible that I have assigned value to and that I want to keep. Now, Mark Cuban isn't just a basketball team owner. He's also one of the sharks on Shark Tank the U.S. equivalent of Dragon's Den. And he's a tech entrepreneur going back to the dot-com boom. In 1999, he sold his startup company Broadcast.com to Yahoo for $5.7 billion, which is generally considered one of the worst internet acquisitions of all time, but not for Mark Cuban. Forbes lists his current wealth at $4.4 billion, making him, by some considerable margin, the richest person I've ever spoken to. You know, when you serialize a poster or a print, let's just say there's a famous picture and you go to an art store and it's been serialized. There's only 50 of these prints of the original pictures of whatever, the Eiffel Tower. And you buy it as a collector because you think it's cool to you like the picture and you think it's cool that you were granted one of the 50 posters that were serialized from that picture. Now you're just getting the digital the, the digital version of that. But with one big difference, you're taking the word of the art store that this was commissioned by the artist or the creator and authorized and they bought one and they're willing to sell it to you. And all that has to deal with trust. And throughout the entire art world or music or creative world, trust is a finicky thing, right? You think you have it until you learn that you don't. And the more money you spend the greater the risk that the trust that you hope for may not be there. Um, And we hear the stories of fraud and misrepresentation all the time. What minting with NFTs does is that it goes through a trustless process, meaning that whatever information or serialized numbers, whatever associated um, information is connected to that digital print that you're getting ready to to, um, commit to is posted on this thing called a blockchain for everybody to see and everybody to search and everybody to explore. So if 
unless somebody walks into your house and says, wait, that can't be print number 50 of the Eiffel Tower because I own print number 50 or I saw it in this other store. There's no way of confirmation. It's all trust versus wait, there's a picture of the Eiffel Tower. And I know it because I just did a Google image search who took me back to this NFT and it's saying that it's serialized and you have number 50. That's what's memorialized on the blockchain. So I know it to be true because everybody and anybody can see it and check it. That's the difference. So you lose all the hassles of working in a trusted environment because trust is, is not always real in the creative industry. Into an environment where it's always real because it's publicly displayed for anybody to check. Cuban's main interest in NFTs is the way they function as smart contracts. A smart contract is a self-executing contract with the terms of the agreement between buyer and seller being directly written into lines of code, making it irreversible. And that's the next thing that makes this so amazing, because the creator of that original painting that turned into prints or the creator of the prints, if you bought one, Tim, and then resold it to me, the original creator gets nothing, doesn't know it took place. With smart contracts and NFTs, the original creator can designate a royalty percentage. It could be zero, it could be 20, it could be 50, it could be 100% if they don't ever want it resold. And every time that happens and there's a resale, whatever that price is, if they designate 10%, they get 10% in perpetuity every time it's resold. That makes it so much more empowering for artists and creators than we've ever seen before. Chloe Diamond, a writer and curator at the Museum of Contemporary Digital Art, thinks that the smart contract element of NFTs could be revolutionary for emerging artists. NFTs uh, certainly have the opportunity, even if it's not maybe the reality yet, to make things, to bring the artist back to the center of this whole process so that maybe the artist is getting uh, recompensed for, the, for work in a way that, they, that, that has eluded them since the dawn of digital art. Um, but ha do you think it has uh, opportunities for smaller artists? Yeah, definitely. I think if we put the kind of hype to one side, I think the NFTs are the most beneficial thing for small artists because the actual entry barrier to then to basically create art, get it in front of people and sell it, it's lower than in any other kind of context, especially, you know, in, in a more traditional art world, you'd need a, maybe a gallery should represent you or you should be featured in a particular exhibition. Um, even the, I guess, the PR work around being an artist is a whole a whole job in itself, let alone actually creating the arts. Whereas um, an interesting thing with NFTs and the artists that we see that use them, we really are sort of seeing the power of social media through that. They're the, their own PR people. They have, they've built their communities, whether it's, you mentioned Instagram, um, Twitter as well is a good one. There are so many Discord channels and just these whole kind of very wholesome discussions going on between artists who uh, are really working to support each other and share their knowledge and bring new people into the space. Um, and, and the other really exciting thing that I've I've seen quite a lot of is these artists who I guess are more representative of NFT artists than the likes of, say, Beeple. They They buy each other's works. The artist sort of is equally the collector um, because they're really just keen to support each other in the most practical way, however they can.
I think the pan- the pandemic sort of lockdown sort of struck that up when people couldn't go to galleries and things. Artists started buying each other's work online. Generally, I know you know there were lots of sort of marketplaces that sprung up, weren't there? Yeah, I think that's a a really powerful thing as well because obviously, if you work as an artist, you know how difficult it can be, and you know, I guess there's that idea of self commodification of yourself as an artist. This is a really hard thing for people to to manage. Um, and I think anything that can be done to really give back control or to, in a way, start new discussions around it, I think is really valuable. And I'm I'm really excited to see that side of the space grow. And I'm confident that it will, because the other thing to bear in mind is, at least back in 2018, the sort of entry barrier onto some of these marketplaces was still quite difficult. Or maybe you needed some understanding of, of cryptocurrencies or had to be fairly technically savvy to be able to get something. Whereas now it's very like the user experience in within NFTs and, and these different marketplaces is better almost than anywhere else in blockchain for sure. Um, and yeah, and the other thing as well is that artists who like because artists are coming at this from a very unique perspective, I think it's sort of like uh, quite a balanced way of bringing the technology to a different level and the artwork to a different level because you have quite different ways of thinking merging together. I mean, you, you talked about the sort of the solid 100% authentication that comes with blockchain technology. Do you think that NFTs will have applications in, in the future in the world of real things? When you, when you buy a, an oil painting in the future, will you get an NFT with that to show that? Are you familiar with StockX at all? No, I'm going to just... StockX is, John, are you familiar with it for sneakers? Yeah. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> yeah. So StockX is the stock exchange for sneakers. You know, people collect sneakers, and they don't collect them to wear them more often than not. They collect them because people value them, and as new, it, they're artwork to people. I mean, I can show you sneakers that I have um, that are funky because I like funky stuff, and, you know, I paid a premium for them. But with StockX, they – if you go in there and buy a pair of Yeezys, right, that you like, and it, you pay a thousand dollars for them, they don't send you the sneakers. They just continue to vault them, and they you effectively have the right to resell them. You can take delivery, but more often than not, they don't. And so you'll see a lot of the same things where physical works of art will be vaulted, um, and people will use NFTs to, to buy and sell them. And that'll be a much more efficient way to do it than we're doing right now with eBay or auctions or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, whoever bought the Beeples, I don't think it's a big deal to them to have it on their phone, <laughs> right? You know, it's just a fact. It's easy to keep safe because it's digital, it's digital NFT. And I guess this trade has existed for a lot of things that are too fragile. To things like wine, where you, where in order to for it to hold its value, it ought to stay in the same place all the time and and so now all of a sudden you know think of the process to buy and sell wine um where you know you're not going to move it it's just a collectible and a store of value right like bitcoin's a store of value so is wine for collectible because you're not going to open it and drink it hey let's party <laughs> you just spent all this money you know nfts for the purpose of offering collectibles is to me just proof of concept i think Real value for NFTs comes from its impact on business. 
And I think it's going to dramatically change the business world. Just as, you know, when we looked at streaming back, back in 1995, when we first started streaming, we're like, how can we use this internet thing to be able to listen to audio and eventually watch video? Everybody thought we were crazy, right? It was like, I'll just turn on the TV, buddy. You know, I'll just turn on my radio. Why, why do I need this junk? No, you don't get it. Well, we're looking at the same type of, of wholesale change here. But back then, like I explained, it was complicated. And over time, it became very simplified as more bandwidth became available and the technology evolved. The same thing is going to happen here. It's still overly complicated. The fact that we have to sit here and have this conversation to explain it tells you all of that, right? And all that will go away. It will become natural. And we'll start to see financial applications. You know, we'll start to see insurance companies created. Now, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in 10 years. It's going to be 20, 25 years, just like streaming. It, it's only over the last couple of years, particularly in the UK, where people are saying, you know, traditional linear television is way outdated and way out of whack, right? And, and, and it took 25 years from the time we started doing this. And it's going to be the same here, but you'll see that evolution to where trustless-based business applications um, are really going to have an impact because they'll all be simplified. Mark Cuban sees many potential applications for this software, but David Gerard isn't so convinced. Is there a use for this that we haven't found yet? So I won't say philosophically that there cannot be a use, but I will say that in 12 years we haven't found one. And at this point, the burden of proof is 100% on the people saying there's pro- there might be a use for it. You know, At this point, asking, what have you got, is a completely fair question. And they can't reverse the burden of proof and say, oh, you can't prove I haven't got a use. It's been 12 years. Show me something. It's just early days yet. Yeah, show me something. It could be great. Yeah, show me something. You know, the hype to production system ratio is through the roof. The potential is always in the fabulous future, never in the present. Um, I mean, my big thing with cryptocurrencies is um, that basically I saw the 2017 bubble starting up and went, ordinary people, mums and dads are going to get ripped off here. And that's really bad. Like, if you're rich or a large company or whatever and you get into cryptocurrencies, you know what? Fine. You know, you're big enough to your money's your own problem, then we can talk about the details. When it starts hitting normal people or poor artists or whatever, and you're just taking these people for your fee and they get nothing, that's a problem. That's a serious problem, and it's quite right to get angry about that. But there are some big hidden problems with NFTs. Ether, the blockchain NFTs run on, consumes the same amount of power annually as Israel does, with a yearly carbon footprint the same as Myanmar's. When combined with Bitcoin, their total annual energy consumption would be larger than Indonesia's and just behind Turkey's. NFTs were written as little programs or implemented as programs running on top of Ethereum. You can run all these on other blockchains that run programs, smart contracts, but Ethereum is by far the most popular. I think that's mostly because Ether is relatively exchangeable for actual money. It's fairly easy to get hold of, like Bitcoin. There are So one of the big problems with NFTs is that Ethereum is, like Bitcoin, an ecological disaster, right? It is super, super inefficient. Um, 
Bitcoiners will argue about saying, oh, you can't just take the total usage and work out the per transaction cost because they don't know anything, because that's totally what you do in a life cycle analysis of anything, right? You work out the total stuff used, you divide it by how much it's work it's doing. So this means that one NFT might um, use about 220 kilowatt hours of electricity. That's its share. An and NFT, just one. And that's and to create it or to maintain to, it or both? or To create it anytime it moves to a new buyer. It's all a transaction. Right. And you might object, but my NFT doesn't add significantly the marginal cost, but, you know, it's still accounted for as a share of that cost. Um, so that's very controversial. And there's been a huge backlash against a lot of, artists and artistic organizations who thought i'll do an nft then their whole fans rise up and go you are evil and they go maybe we won't <laughs> a lot of them weren't aware at all i mean artists aren't technologists well no. the, 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 st the statistic that gets bandied about a lot is that the bitcoin uh, as a as a entity uses as much electricity in a year as ireland does yep um it's currently up to an argentina right as is it <laughs> yep. Um, Ethereum is smaller, but it's still a country-sized output. It's somewhere between Lebanon and Iceland at the moment. Um, so this is a serious concern. There are blockchain systems that don't use this method, but they're small and unpopular and no one much uses them because getting the currency for them is a lot faffier. Like you'd have to buy Bitcoin and then buy this other currency and... So it's quite complicated. I mean, they, they're, 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 generally speaking, even though this isn't the way it has to be, at the moment, they, the, the Ethereum blockchain is, is where most NFTs are, are traded. Is that right? And, yeah. and that is a pretty environmentally damaging system like Bitcoin. But So are you talking about moving, uh, setting up an environmentally friendly new technology or a different kind of blockchain or how would it work well that's definitely one approach like well i guess the difference between the way bitcoin works and the way ethereum works even fundamentally is the idea of proof of work versus proof of stake so even ethereum compared to bitcoin is a better solution environmentally moving to a proof of stake method which is just a different way of approving transactions on the ethereum blockchain does use 99.95% less energy, but it's still quite far away from becoming reality, with the first stage of this transition not happening until mid-2022. But then, I guess now with the Ethereum ecosystem just being so much more congested, uh, gas fees as well are much higher, even before considering the environmental impact that's already causing hesitations from people. Um, like that is so one... Gas just to just because I I barely understand this, but so gas is the is the sort of price you pay for the it's a sort of like administrative fee that you pay to to mint NFTs in in Ethereum. Is that right? So yeah, in this context, yes, but in in the context of the blockchain in general, it would be just to make that transaction happen, like the fee to make the transaction take place. Blockchain technology, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or NFTs, um, this comes up again and again, that, that has a tremendous cost to the environment. Um, it seems like every few months, the, the, the country that 
Bitcoin uses as much electricity as gets upgraded to another country. I, last I heard, it was Argentina. Um, right. Is what can be done to overcome that? And do do you see any of that happening now? Yeah, yeah. So with with Bitcoin, um, I don't know the exact numbers, and a lot of it isn't minted in the UK or the United States. A lot of it's in China, which has it creates its own set of problems. Um, but at the same time, um, if you think about the utility, let's just talk to Bitcoin and being able to become your own personal banker because you own one Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. All those utilities we just talked about, gone. Right. All these industries that require, you know, layers and layers and layers and layers of people and physical buildings to support those people, destabilized and disrupted. And so that's not to say there's not a negative physical impact immediately in the short term, but I think if you gauge it over the long-term impact, again, if we had the same type of conversation about the internet in 1994 or five, this is exactly what we would say, you know, or we said about PC, you know, well, we, I had a, a bookkeeper that you just use pen and paper to keep the books. And then we got a PC, which used, uh, used all this electricity. And then that turned into thousands of PCs in our company, you know, but then over time, we realized, you know, it became more efficient and more energy efficient. So that's Bitcoin. Um, with Ethereum, part of the, the significant use of energy with Bitcoin and Ethereum as of today is because they do something called proof of work. So remember, we talked about things being decentralized, where you would just have these miners that just ver- act as verifiers or validators for what happened when they write on the blockchain. Well, Ethereum is evolving from the compute intensive approach of proof of work where miners have to solve problems, um, mathematical problems in order to, to get paid for writing a transaction to the blockchain. Ethereum is evolving from proof of work where it's um, compute intensive to proof of stake where it's just confirmation. And, and so the amount of energy that's going to be required for that is a fraction of what it is today. And still with smart contracts, you are going to see a net positive impact if, you know, or all this is tentative because until it happens, it hasn't happened, right? But based off of expectation, um, you'll see significant energy changes, um, savings versus the traditional um, trust-based industries, whether it's financial insurance, whatever it may be. Well, there you have it. Non-fungible tokens are either the future of art and collecting in the same way that Bitcoin is the future of money, or they're a mere extension of cryptocurrency's monumental Ponzi scheme, a little extra air in a vast speculative bubble. The blockchain technology that makes them work could potentially revolutionize the contract as we know it, or it could just be an easy way to steal and profit from the art of others. Or the NFT could be a key player in a burgeoning environmental catastrophe. Of course, it could also be all of these things. This is one of the problems with understanding what an NFT is. When people in the know talk about NFTs, they often speak in generalities and in terms of possibility rather than reality. What's an NFT? Anything can be an NFT. A tweet can be an NFT. This podcast can be an NFT. It's hard to set the limits on meaning a definition normally requires. So I've learned a lot without getting much closer to an understanding. Sometimes it's easy to feel as if NFTs were invented just to piss people like me off. But I don't think that's the case. 
Anyway, at least I know what it stands for now. Thanks to my guests, Mark Cuban, David Gerrard, Chloe Diamond, and Charlie Gear. Thank you for listening to Insult My Intelligence. Please leave us a rating and review. You can follow us on Twitter at InsultMyIntel. And if you have an idea or a topic for an episode, email us at InsultMyIntelShow at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be talking about bananas. <laughs>